Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to talk about writing Lovecraftian horror, representation in genre, and producing a companion podcast for a popular TV series with a very special guest. Yeah, we're joined by Shannon Houston, who is a writer on the HBO series Lovecraft Country and also the co-host of the Lovecraft Country radio podcast. She's also written for shows like Little Fires Everywhere and The Looming Tower. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And uh, let's get started. Yes. All right. So uh, first up, just uh, a little bit about your background. Uh, where are you from and how did you end up in the industry and in L.A.? Oh, um, so I'm from a few places. I grew up mostly in Boston, but also lived in North Carolina and Cleveland for a while. Graduated from high school in Cleveland and went to New York for college and stayed in New York up until I got staffed uh, out here in LA and then came out here. Ugh, it's been all three years, almost three years now. And uh, did you have any early inspirations in terms of a TV, a movie, especially maybe you were a huge uh, horror fan or something like that? Yeah, it's funny. I I was never really, really big into very, very scary movies. Horror wasn't quite my thing, but my favorite show when I was like a teenager was definitely Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I've talked about on the podcast. But that's kind of my brand of scary. Like that's about as much as I can take. But I loved that show. But I think more around that time, it was like that kind of stuff. And I did like sci-fi fantasy adventure type things, but mostly was always drawn to family drama type stuff, which is also, you know, why I love Buffy. So I would say Buffy was one of the big ones. And then getting older and really falling in love with TV more, loved Misha Green's first show, Underground, obsessed with The Leftovers, Damon Lindelof's The Leftovers, The Americans. I think those were the shows that were coming out that I was excited about and feeling like, okay, I I think I want to work in television now. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you get that first writing job or staff job on a show? Yeah, so the first job actually started from my career as a TV critic and a film critic. And I was writing in criticism for a while. I was an editor at Paste Magazine and had written some really long, beautiful, obsessive essays about Transparent, which was another show that I really loved. And as it turned out, Joey Soloway was reading some of those essays and we ended up developing a little bit of a relationship. And long story short, I sent Joey something to read and Joey was kind enough to read it and give me feedback. And basically they asked me, do you want to make this into a TV show? And I really did. So they helped me along with their production company uh, that was at Amazon at the time, Topple. Topple and Amazon worked with me in developing this pilot. And that led to me getting agents and getting staffed on my first show, which was The Looming Tower on Hulu. Wow. And you walk us through sort of that first day or first week in the writer's room of The Looming Tower as a staff writer? I think a few things were going on. On the one hand, definitely like shock and awe that I was doing it. There was an adjustment. I had been working from home for years as a critic. You know, occasionally I would leave and go see a movie, but most of my writing was from home. So there was that adjustment of like actually just going into an office and sitting around a table with people for several hours and working. So that adjustment was still going on in that first week for sure. But obviously like crazy excitement. And I think 
that was a great first show for me because I do love to think about history and I do love to think about the ways that the past is constantly in conversation with the present. I do love telling a story that people think is familiar to them. The looming tower is about nine 11 to a degree, but it was really about all these events leading up to nine 11 and also a lot of myths and misinformation that we were all given by our own government about what was happening. And I was really excited to dive in and to be working with people like Danny Fetterman, who was the showrunner, Larry Wright, and Alex Gibney. And we had other incredible writers in the room too. So mostly excitement, definitely jitters, definitely nervous, definitely was afraid that maybe as a critic, I wouldn't have the best perspective that I would lean too heavily on the criticism side. I think I managed to find a balance and everybody there was really encouraging and it helped a lot. So in terms of that first writing job, what were your kind of expectations going in versus what you learned the the reality of being a staff writer was, especially as someone uh, coming from a TV critic background? Well, this is going to sound strange maybe, but I definitely remember thinking this is hard work, but it's not as hard as when I was a freelance writer. Like the sheer number of hours that I worked as a freelancer and every freelance writer knows this, it was endless. Like I, I really didn't take days off. I remember working on Christmas and Thanksgiving and, you know, getting things posted as an editor, like all kinds of just crazy hours. And I remember feeling really shocked that I wasn't as exhausted as a TV writer. And of course the weirdness of like, but I'm making so much more money now. How is this possible? So that's a myth. Just realizing like, oh yeah, you can work a lot harder at a different kind of job and be struggling and then come into an industry like this where you're paid very well for less hours. It was just kind of a like mind blowing to me. And so there was that element of just like, oh, this is hard work and it's a different kind of work, but it's not as hard as I thought it was going to be. And it is a lot of fun and there is a lot of like joking in the writer's room. And so there was that element. I think I also thought like because of the seriousness of the material that it would be more somber. But I think when you are working on these kind of intense dramas, you need more humor in the writer's room and maybe even more humor. You're looking for more humor in the scripts as well. So that kind of surprised me. And I think it was just, you know, for some people, they really believe in the hierarchy in the writer's room and other showrunners don't, but then kind of do. So it was also just being like, am I talking too much? Am I not talking enough? I should have said something about that, you know, like in that kind of weird space of I'm new to this, but I do obviously have things to contribute, but I don't want to overstep. Like it's a funky feeling in the beginning, but I think overall it was, like I said, I I had such encouragement. It was a really great experience. That's great. And uh, moving on from uh, the looming tower, how did you end up on uh, Lovecraft country? So similar to my relationship with Joey Soloway, I'd had something similar with Misha Green where I was writing about underground every week and spending hours, like for the people who think that Lovecraft Country is a complicated show with a lot of things, underground was very similar where I would watch an episode and I would have to watch it like at least one more time, maybe a third time to really get my hands into everything that was happening and to write a review that I felt honored the work that was being done on that show. So I put a lot of love and work into my 
reviews and essays about underground and then ended up developing mostly like an online kind of like, hi there relationship with Misha. But she'd always told me to like, look her up if I came out to LA. So when I came out for another job, we ended up having drinks. And at that point I had read Lovecraft Country because I heard it was coming out and she knew I wanted to be in the room. I was like pretty transparent about that. And then we had our formal meeting about the writer's room. And I was so excited about her ideas, like the things that she wanted to keep from the book and the things that she wanted to change. It was just so exciting. And obviously I was already a huge fan of her work. So that's how that happened. And yeah, we started the room in, uh, I think it was January of 2018. And how was the writer's room experience on Lovecraft Country compared to some of the other shows you'd worked on just in terms of style and experience? Definitely harder, definitely more work, definitely. And when I say more work, I mean also like personal work, like so much of our personal stories and personal thoughts and personal politics came out because they had to, because of this type of story we were trying to tell and the type of characters we were trying to create. And Misha did warn us in the beginning, it's going to feel like therapy and therapy sucks sometimes. (laughs) Like you don't want to go. You don't feel like thinking about all those things. So it was definitely a lot of work in having a showrunner like Misha means if she's dedicating so much of her life to make this show happen, you are also going to dedicate a good portion of your life to make this show happen. So what you're seeing on the screen is the result of a lot of that hard work. And again, like a lot of that was internal, not just needing to do research and watching a lot of movies, especially me not being a horror person. I had a lot of homework to do in the beginning to just kind of get a sense of the world that we were going to be living in. So definitely tough, definitely amazing, definitely one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And I'm still, you know, that's one of the reasons I was so excited to do the podcast because I still want to talk about it. I still feel like there's a lot of work to do around the show and around just get, you know, understanding the show and and what it's doing. On that note of uh, the world building, can you walk us through the process of breaking the show in the room and especially in terms of blue skying versus episode building? How uh, did that breakdown work? Yes. So we started out doing basically let's think about the entire season. So let's try to break out the whole season from episode one had already been written when we started the room. So from episode two on, where are we starting our characters? And we always started with characters and what we wanted them to be going through at the beginning of the season and what we needed to get them to at the end. One thing that we did that I always go back to because it's helped me with my other writing is we would make these very basic character cards. So we would say, okay, this character in three words, who are they at the beginning of the show? And in three words or less than three words, like who are they at the end? And just to get a picture of what we thought each person was and what we wanted them to get to. And then we would go into each episode. Okay. If this person started out as a lone wolf, how are they in episode two? They're still a lone wolf, obviously, and it's causing problems. Then you get to episode three. Somebody has to point out to them, hey, you're a lone wolf. It's a problem. You know, like those kind of things and what those scenes look like and then getting them to that shift. We wanted all of our characters to go through some sort of evolution. People can only change so much. So we knew that going into it, but we wanted them to go through an evolution. And then we wanted to tell each story, each episode, as a reflection of both the evolution that a particular character was going through and a reflection of a particular 
issue that was obviously like very important during that time. And a lot of those issues are still very important right now. So we would think about it from the character perspective, then also from the historical perspective, and then finally from the perspective of monsters. (laughs) So that would always be the thing of like, let's look at each episode without the monsters And think about what we want to see from our family and how we're going to get people to be invested in this family, this cast of characters. And then let's think about the historical stuff and the political things that we're trying to talk about. And then let's throw the monsters in and let all of those things be speaking to each other in some way. Episode three is a really good example of that, where you have a character who has, well, literally come back from the dead. She did die in episode two. She's kind of floating around her life like a ghost. And so we had to think about, well, what would that mean politically for her? What mistakes would she make if she's not like a full human being right now? And then on top of that, she has actual literal ghosts in the house. So how would she interact with those ghosts? And how would she understand those ghosts differently because of what she's been through? Yeah, it sounds like there was a lot to consider there. In terms of the overall kind of macro structure of the show, how did you kind of go about making decisions about how episodic versus serialized things should be in those kind of, you know, almost anthology type storylines? Yes, this was definitely challenging because in the book, you have a a chapter that's kind of dedicated to a particular character. But the work of the show was to say, okay, if episode three is really Letty's story, we still have a bunch of other characters that we have to check in with. And so even if we're only with this character for one scene or one beat here, we're threading it all in. So, you know, there's a moment in episode three where Hippolyta is preparing food from all the food that's being brought to her house because George died and she's in the kitchen with Letty and kind of mumbling about this problem that she's having with Atticus. And then in that same episode, Hippolyta also finds the orrery in another room. So those are just tiny moments with one character, but we're building that in because we know that we have work to do with Hippolyta later on in the season. So it was tough as far as, you know, we would look at, we would break an episode and we would be like, there's no way this is a two hour episode. What are we going to do? And a lot of, I think I've had that experience on other shows too, maybe not to the degree of Lovecraft country. And then we would have to move things around or say, okay, we can't have this whole scene with this character. How can we get emotion and excitement in a brief moment with Hippolyta. Okay. She opens the door. There's the orrery, things like that helped us a lot. Again, not, not an easy job. And I think it, again, I think it shows on the show, but definitely an excellent training and how to pack a lot into one hour. Well, flowing from that, this seems to be sort of a consensuous decision to make every episode feel a bit differently in terms of the genre of uh, episode four is a bit of an adventure and episode two is more fantasy and so forth. Can you talk more about the decision of making every episode its own little mini movie and what went into those decisions? Sure. So if you read the book by Matt Roth, on the one hand, that's very much the feeling of the book. Every chapter kind of feels like its own thing and it occupies its own space. And Misha was really excited about that because we knew that we were going to be on HBO and we knew what kind of budget we were going to have. And so it was like, okay, so this is a big playground. And what I like about it is it makes it hard 
And I think it's a good hard, but I think it makes it hard for the audience to settle in and to go, oh, okay, this is this is a horror show with monsters that can jump through the air and tunnel underground. That's how you feel at the end of episode one. And then episode two feels very Buffy the Vampire Slayer to me of like, cults and people with like crazy robes doing magic that's a different vibe and then three is a haunted house and then four totally different adventure goonies indiana jones and we loved that feeling because it's like on the one hand it just gives you a richer experience i think a little bit of everything mashed into 10 episodes but it also speaks to i think this greater message of the show which is nothing is just one thing those things that you think are just very simple facts of life are actually a lot more complicated than that and people are really complicated and genre is really complicated if you think about horror horror is exciting not just because of like blood and body parts and violence but because there's so much you can say political things with horror you can talk about feminism through horror you can do all kinds of things so it's like horror isn't just one thing horror is pulling on politics and family drama and sci-fi elements like all of that exists in that space so i think we're in a way letting these genres breathe by showing how they're in conversation with each other yeah so kind of on that topic how do you then uh, go about balancing the tone of lovecraft country and setting and that kind of thing with all the different genres and formats that are being explored if I had to think about the tone of the show, it, it's really hard because it's like, well, it's Buck Wild. It's everything. Like, it seems to me like there's a little bit of everything in, in every moment and every episode, which is what, again, can make it hard to like settle into it. It keeps you on the edge of your seat because you're like, well, that scene was really terrifying. And this scene is really powerful, but it also feels very spiritual but then something sexy happens and you're like, why is something sexy happening right now? So, but that is the tone, like that feeling that you've had throughout these first few episodes, that's the tone. And it's, it's hard for me to say if there's definitely a balance, is there a perfect balance? I don't know about that because it's more to me like a roller coaster ride. <laughs> and that's very different from a standard like prestige TV drama. And uh, you also mentioned that there were some conversations about deciding what to keep or change or adapt in terms of the novel. Can you speak a bit to those decisions? Yes. So this was another really great process for adaptation. Obviously, we all had to read the book. We had to read it a second time right before the room started. And then as we were working on each episode, we would reread the chapter of that episode or the chapter that that episode was based on. And we would talk about what was really important, what we definitely needed to have, or, you know, like the big things that we really needed, but then also the small scenes that we liked or small character moments that we liked. And we would use that as the foundation. And then we would say, okay, now what are the other 45 things that we also want to do? So I always thought of the book as this incredible jumping off point that then allowed us to do other insane, crazy things that were not in the book. It was important that we knew the material really well, especially the mythology. We definitely drew on a lot of that from the book. Again, we would always go back and say, well, what happened there? Let's go back and read this chapter again to see what we need and to see what we can use. And again, to see what in there inspires us to do something really different and really crazy. 
in terms of the mythology that you were drawing upon, sort of not just from the book, but also, you know, it's kind of root source, this Lovecraftian horror. Um, there's also that kind of thing of his whole history of racism. Like, how did you guys kind of make that conscious decision to kind of retake ownership of those things and reframe them? I've said this before. I think I've said it on the podcast, too, that that's not a complicated thing to do because so many great works that we look to, so many great authors, great artists, great creatives, great politicians, those people that we call great, when we start digging, and usually we don't have to dig very much, but when you start digging, they're problematic. A lot of them are, all of them are, most of them are, you know, Lovecraft being racist. We, you know, we didn't talk about that every day in the room. We didn't come in the room and say, okay, this episode has to be a direct attack against this racist trope from this Lovecraft story. It wasn't like that. It was more just the understanding of Lovecraft was racist. And so much of horror is rooted in fear of the other, which can very easily be tied to racism. So just knowing that we had that, again, knowing that the Black person generally dies (laughs) at the beginning of the movie, we're already not doing that. So I think just by virtue of doing the show and knowing that we were going to have mostly Black characters... That was our response to Lovecraft's story. And it's also an acknowledgement of like, yeah, a lot of the Lovecraft, the world building and these monsters and that psychological horror, that's very powerful stuff that we're all still like drawing on and playing in. So we can acknowledge a great writer, a great creator and still be like, but you're racist. And obviously we're not doing that. We're not walking in your footsteps in, in that same way, but we are exploring what makes people like you the real monster? Well, on that note, you mentioned, obviously, sort of the power of allegory through horror. Uh, What were some of the choices and decisions behind sort of picking which monster, which ghost, or which fantasy element to include in uh, each episode? How did you sort of uh, gauge what was more effective narratively based on the story? Well, I think we thought about a lot of different things, but... Like visually, what's exciting was always on the table, just like things that we wanted to see. The Goonies episode is very much like that. Episode four, A History of Violence, is we just want to see somebody walk a plank because that's cool. We want to see people try to figure out a code because that's cool. Haunted houses. Of course, we thought about like just what are some of our, what are some of the creepiest ghosts we've seen in movies and how can we play on that? But then going back to the ghosts, they're a really good example of. Well, we also thought, but if these ghosts were people, who were they? And since we're dealing with race and Letty is pioneering, like, how can we use those monsters to tell a bigger story about what happens to Black people in America? What happens to Black people in the medical industry? What happens when Black people aren't looked at as people, but bodies and flesh and material that can be used. So those things were in conversation with each other. Similarly with episode four, we all love an adventure movie, but so many of those movies speak to colonialism without actually addressing colonialism. So we wanted to try to do that. Another really important part of the show is sort of the music and the audio and the voices uh, that you guys incorporate, like James Baldwin. So uh, could you speak a little bit to that? Yes, this was really great. This was something that Misha said she wanted to do at the very beginning of the writer's room. And so she would tell us to keep an eye out and keep an ear out for cool audio and where it might go in the show, because she did say she didn't want to just use music anymore. She wanted to have these other voices speaking over 
certain scenes. So we have Baldwin in the first episode. We have Gil Scott Heron in the second episode. We have like lots more coming. The point is, again, those voices aren't from the past. We say they are, and technically they are, but it's very strange and interesting and horrific that James Baldwin's speech that was given in the 50s or the 60s can still be completely applicable in a show like Lovecraft Country that's airing in 2020. So we, I think we always wanted that to be on people's minds. And it's also just, again, I think it makes for a richer tapestry. So when you're interacting with the show, you're interacting with the characters, you're interacting with the monsters, you're interacting with the bad guys. And then you're also being led by the music and by the images. Um, We have Gordon Parks imagery that we're pulling on. We have other artists' works that we're pulling on. And then we have these voices, these monologues or poems that you're hearing so it's that feeling of all of these things are happening at once in the show because that is kind of how life works, you know, and that's how art works and how art is made. All of these seemingly disparate things are actually in conversation with each other. You are also the co-host of the companion podcast, Lovecraft Country Radio. Uh, can you walk us through how that podcast came about? Sure. So HBO, I think initially wanted to do like behind the episode type videos and interviews and we decided to pivot to the podcast because there are such big themes on the show and there is a lot happening in the show and so we thought it would be better to have this space where a conversation is happening that can unpack some of these bigger things and they came to me and we started looking for a co-host and I felt very drawn to Ashley C. Ford right away. I knew that we needed somebody who could really dive deep into the show who wouldn't be afraid to talk about some of these bigger issues. The show is uncomfortable. I have no problem saying that. Like it's a wonderful, incredible piece of art. And I think like a lot of other wonderful, incredible pieces of art, it's uncomfortable at times. There are things that pop up on the screen that we don't want to talk about and we don't want to think about, and we don't want to think about our role in those things. So just having a willing partner who would be interested in diving in with me every week was really important. And she's just brilliant and funny and her voice is so perfect for it. Like everybody loves her voice. So finding Ashley was like the other piece to the puzzle. And we've just been having an incredible time. I've said a million times to people, I I could talk about the show all day, every day. So getting to do the podcast is also really fun for me as a fan of the show, because I get to talk about the things that I really love and the scenes that didn't make it in that we really wanted in, but we didn't have the space. Like all those kinds of elements are exciting. And also just hearing Ashley's perspective and agreeing with her or disagreeing with her or her bringing up something that I never even thought about that we didn't talk about in the writer's room, but that is somehow playing out on the screen. All of that is really exciting for me. Yeah. And uh, maybe this is just us being fellow podcast nerds, but I'm curious about the kind of production process for the podcast. How far in advance are you recording and talking about these episodes? We're a few episodes ahead. So we're currently recording right now. We have not finished recording. We're a few episodes ahead of the actual episodes airing, which is 
really great because we're also getting to obviously see a lot of feedback from people and people are raising questions that I think are helpful for us too in thinking about how we want to talk about each episode. So we're in conversation with the audience while we're recording and I like that feeling. On that note, how do you decide sort of uh, the topics that you want to cover for each episode? It's hard. It's really hard because we want to talk about everything and we don't have time. But it depends on the episode. You know, like some episodes we go, we need to really focus on the themes and then think about different scenes that we want to talk about according to those themes. We like to bring in other pieces of work. Like I've read a couple of poems. I read the Lovecraft poem in one of the early episodes, but we like to also bring in other pieces of literature or songs that we're thinking of or another movie that we saw to be in conversation with our conversation. That's kind of my way of like mimicking the actual show. Lovecraft Country is doing a bunch of things. So the radio should try to pull on a bunch of different things. So usually I think we tend to focus on themes and then we talk about the scenes based on those themes that we're talking about. And then sometimes it's like, let's just talk about this character for three minutes because we're obsessed with this character and and what they're up to. And how do you feel the podcast kind of complements the experience of watching the show, whether it's, you know, delving deeper into the meaning or the historical background, things the viewers might have missed? It's so funny. You know, I think it was one of those things in the beginning where I was like, this will just be like a fun thing and like a few people will listen to it and like it. I didn't realize that there are now people who have a whole ritual of watching the episode, then coming to the podcast, then going back and rewatching the episode based on the podcast. And I think that that's really cool. I did not know we were going to be that useful, but I'm really glad that we are. And I think people are finding, you know, again, this is not a show that you can watch in one sitting while your kids are running around and you're texting on the phone. Like you, will miss 45 things if you watch it like that. So I think part of what the podcast is doing is also saying to people, this is one that you got to watch. Like you have to pay attention because there are so many details. Again, there are people on Twitter pointing out details that I didn't even know were in there or that I forgot we talked about. So I'm having this whole other experience. So I think the podcast really is a companion to the show now in a good way. And especially as a former critic, how bizarre is it to sort of analyze your own work for other people? It's bizarre and it's really fun. And I think what helps me is because I'm a critic, I can go, Shannon, they don't have to like it. Shannon, they don't have to agree. Shannon, just because you think the scene is about this, it doesn't mean that the scene is about that for everybody. So I welcome criticism. I welcome just like people who watch a thing closely and have things to say. I welcome the love, the hate, all of it, because I know that that is the job of the audience and that is the job of the critic. I've done my job to a degree, but I think Lovecraft Country was also a really great moment for me to realize I can actually do both at the same time. There would be times in the writer's room where we would ask, okay, what do we actually want people to write about? Like when people go in to do their deep dives, what do we want them to say? And what kind of scenes do we need to craft to have those kind of conversations? Because again, it's about sparking more conversations. So I felt like I was very useful in those moments because I could look at a scene and say, okay, this is the essay that I would write. 
And this is what I would say based on this scene. So maybe we need to move things around or maybe we need to put more of this here. Those kind of things. Now, that being said, like I'm not the right critic for Lovecraft Country (laughs) because I worked on it, because I'm close to it, because I love it. And again, that's why it was important to have a co-host and it's important for us to have guests on the show. We have more guests coming who can also speak to the reaction that they're having because of course I have blind spots and of course I have ego. So all of that plays a factor in it. But I do think that I'm better at it than I thought that I would be of stepping back and really looking at it and saying, oh, this is actually how this scene feels now. And how have you handled that audience response to the show, whether it's, you know, online on Twitter or through critics? It seems people have been pretty vocal, both in praising the cleverness and the depth of the show, but also perhaps at times it's garnered some controversy over some choices. So how much uh, are you taking that feedback on both in the podcast and as the writer's room and creatives? I'm taking the feedback, the feedback that I would say is done from a place of like, no, this was a real problem and we can lay out why there's a real problem. Like the people who don't like the show and just hate the show, it's like, oh, okay, well, then the show is not for you. But there are people who are like, oh, no, we like it and this is wrong and this is problematic and this is offensive. And I read a lot of those things and I sit with them and I'm like, oh, okay, yes, that was a problem. This could have been done this way. So anything done with care, I am paying attention to and I'm thinking about and I'm thinking about how I can apply it to all of my future work. And also it's completely overwhelming because again, you're working on a show and you know, it's going to probably be big, but then you don't really know the scale of that until it starts. So for the first like three episodes, I would be up till two in the morning all the time, just trying to read everything. I was trying to watch and listen to every podcast about the show. I could not do that. That was not sustainable after a week or two. And by not sustainable, I mean like this is another full-time job that you don't have time for and you're not getting paid for. So get off Twitter. It is hard because it's, well, on the one hand, a lot of it feeds your ego and that's problematic. And then on the other hand, a lot of it is just stuff. And then some of it is useful. So I'm still in that space of like figuring out, okay, some of this is fun. Some of this is useful. Some of this isn't. I don't have to consume at all, but it is hard, especially, you know, in this particular year when you kind of just want to be on your phone all day anyway, it's very easy to do that. So I'm working on it. (laughs) (laughs) And what were some of those conversations that were had in the writer's room that you feel are now sort of discussed on Twitter and online? I think one of my favorite conversations that I see happening is this conversation about generational trauma within families. And that's really important to me because it tells me that we did our job as far as getting people invested in these characters and getting people to see these characters as reflections of their own selves and their own family members. So I've seen some really great responses to what the show is trying to say about just like on a basic level, what so many families look like because of secrets that are kept because of the history of racial violence against black people in this country, because of the relationship, the violent relationship between cops and black people in this country, like how that actually then comes into the home and affects relationships and affects marriages and friendships and all of those things. So I'm really interested in seeing more of those deep dives into the family dynamic and how everything is political, really, how everything 
can be traced back to politics and, and the trauma of politics in this country for Black Americans. So those are things that we talked about a lot in the room. Again, not just the big issues. Like if you think about police brutality as this big issue, it can be easy to forget how it affects a little girl on her way to school. And those were the things that we wanted to talk about and that we wanted the show to do. So I love seeing people really wrestle with those things and think about them more. Just taking a slight step back from the show for a second, on a personal level, how do you kind of manage the instability of this industry, especially now with COVID and, you know, putting together gigs as a writer? Have you had to do kind of Zoom rooms and things like that so far, or how's it all been? It's been manageable for me to a degree. I'm developing something right now. So I have my own script that I'm working on that's been in development for the last year. And so most of my writing has been on my own and then having a couple of phone calls and meetings over Zoom. I haven't done a Zoom writer's room yet, but I know some people who have and everybody seems like it's kind of weird, but then you get used to it and it's manageable and it makes sense for what we're trying to do right now. So it's more just been about me trying to create a schedule that allows me to write while in the house with three children running around and a turtle. So that's a challenge in of itself. And I've had to make adjustments. I've spent the last two weeks trying to figure out how to go to bed early and wake up early. And that's very different from like in April when I was just up till 3am for no reason and like eating my second and third dinner in the middle of the night. So I'm trying to make that shift now to like, oh no, this is how it's going to be for a long time. You have to learn how to write under different circumstances. There's no coffee shop to go to. The kids are not leaving the house and going to school. So it's very, it's a completely different world. And I'm still trying to figure out how to make the adjustment but I'm working on it. I'm using my bedtime alarm (laughs) on my phone. Um, But yeah, that's been what it's like for me, just trying to balance it all. Losing my mind and failing a lot of the time and then just trying again. Sounds like a recipe for success. (laughs) I hope so. And uh, were there any lessons that you took from the Lovecraft Country Writers Room that you want to pass on to our writer listeners? Oh, so many lessons. The lesson that I learned was just like, as hard as you think you're working, you can work harder. As much time as you're spending with your characters and understanding them, you can work harder at understanding them. As much as you think you've read, you need to read more. You know, I walked into that room thinking that I had a really good understanding of Black history (laughs) in America. And I walked out being like, what? (laughs) There are 400 things that I never knew about. I did not know what a sundown town was when I started that writer's room. I didn't know much about pioneering and what that looked like. So many important details that changed my mind and blew my mind away. So it was a very educational experience. And so I think as a writer, I just learned you should always be working in an educational experience. And even if you're in a writer's room where you're not being asked to read these three books or this essay or watch these movies, you should just be doing that anyway. You should always be doing that and filling yourself up with as much information. Not that you're going to use all of it, but just that it's there and that you have access to it. And it makes for a much more interesting and complicated story. There are so many stories out there that have not been told. There were so many stories that we wanted to tell over the course of these 10 episodes that we couldn't quite get into. We didn't have the time or space. So just that understanding of like the richness of American history and American people and just all of us need to do more to dive in. 
And uh, what are your long-term career goals? Where do you kind of see yourself heading in the future? Obviously, I would love to have my own show. I would love to write a movie or several movies. I don't know about directing, but it feels like it's probably somewhere down the line for me. Just more, just more, more creating. One of the shows that I worked on this year, uh, Little Fires Everywhere, I was asked to write a couple of poems for that show. And that reminded me that I haven't written poetry in a while and I love poetry. So there's a big part of me that wants to get back to that. I don't see myself as only working in television for my entire life in the same space of like always wanting to expand and always wanting to do new things and try new things. I want to give myself that freedom too. So there's a lot that I want to create and there's a lot of stories that I want to tell most of them about like weird black women up to weird things. So I'm excited to do all of that, but I'm also excited to see what else I might do after this and put out a poetry book at some point or something now that my bills are paid, things like that. All right, before we go, we have a few final questions. And number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Oh, I'm in like uh, that dark space of quarantine where I can't watch anything new, basically. And I'm only watching like reruns. So I'm watching Sister Sister on Netflix. I'm watching Girlfriends. I'm watching Living Single. Buffy, I was not lying when I say that I watch the show every week. So Buffy season three is like my safe space. Yes, Faith. <laughs> Doing that. Yes, absolutely. Faith, Giles and the Band Candy, all of that stuff. So it's it's a lot of that. Um, I did recently watch an incredible short film. I think it's called Suicide by Sunlight. And it's about black vampires. And it's amazing. I just watched that the other day. That was really fun. I watched a really incredible documentary called Anatomy of Wings about a group of girls in Baltimore in a program together. So I've been here and there. I've been watching some new stuff, but it's a lot of old stuff. I'm watching The Crown. It's just <laughs> like all my comfort food right now. Do you have any final advice for TV writers, whether they're working or aspiring to break in? Keep writing, get to work, work harder, keep reading, read, 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 steal ideas from your favorite authors <laughs> um, and make them your own. Keep doing it. And I think like kind of to what I said earlier, if this is what you really want and you want to break in and you feel like you haven't gotten a chance or there's something that you can still do that you haven't done. I just think it's a lot of it is education. I'm still reading books about screenwriting. I'm still watching documentaries about making films and documentaries about my favorite writers, like things like that. There's so much information. And sometimes it's easy to think, well, I already know how to do that. So I shouldn't need to take a writing class. I just took a writing class this summer. It was a seminar. And it felt great. It felt great to just be like, yeah, you still need to learn how to write, even though you're a professional writer. So I think just being in a, in a space of growth is really important. Well, on that, do you have any resources that you can recommend to our listeners, be it books, uh, films, podcasts, etc.? There's a documentary that I just recently watched, which is shocking because this is one of my favorite authors, but Toni Morrison's I think it's called The Pieces I Am documentary. It's on Hulu. That's an incredible documentary for writers to watch, I think, because she talks a lot about process and experience. And she talks a little bit about how it is to write novels with two small children. So I found that really helpful. So that's one. I love reading interviews. I mean, when I, when I was a critic, I used to 
prepare for interviews with directors or showrunners by reading all of their recent interviews or some of their recent interviews, partly because I didn't want to ask them the same questions that they'd been getting, but also because it allowed me to like dive more into their craft and how they work. So when you see those interviews pop up with other writers that you love, you can get a lot of information from there. And I think that that's a great resource. Great. And uh, lastly, where can people find both the podcast and the show of Lovecraft Country? So Lovecraft Country Radio is everywhere that you get your podcasts. And Lovecraft Country is on HBO and HBO Max. It premieres Sunday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern. Great. Well, to our listeners, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patron podcast, Cheat Sheets, and as an exclusive Paper Team mentorship updates just for our Patreon supporters. So get on it at paperteam.co slash Patreon, and we can keep producing a great show like this one for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in, and thanks so much to Shannon for joining us. Thank you, guys. This was so much fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Us. And you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 192. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And uh, where can our listeners find you on social media if you want to be found? <laughs> I'm at Shannon M. Houston on Twitter. And I'm at Shannon M. Houston Official on Instagram. Excellent. Uh, and if our listeners have any uh, questions, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And uh, what are we doing next week? Well, next week, we will be uh, taking a break for Indigenous Peoples Day, but we'll be back on Monday, October 19, with the second mentorship episode with our new mentee, Ben Warner. So uh, we'll be looking at the first outline of his pirate pilot. (laughs) So we'll see you then. (laughs) See you then.